welcome everyone to Sport Tech Daily's episode with Mohamed Khan, ex-general manager of the Jamaica Talawas. Mohamed, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Thank you, Nako. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Okay. Well, I was just saying before we started recording that we spoke for about half an hour, 40 minutes, and, and we started to cover some of the topics that we we're going to talk about today. So, um, look, mm. uh, as usual, we, we start off with a, a bit about um, who we're talking to and, and their background. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and I guess how you first got into sport? Yeah. So, I mean, I was I was born and raised here in, in, in New Jersey in the U.S. Um, you know, my sports were never actually cricket. You know, my sport growing up was basketball. That was the sport I loved the most. And I played basketball every day after I got back from school. That's what I watched. Uh, basketball, baseball. And I actually thought cricket was a little stupid, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. My dad, my dad really loved cricket. Um, and only when I started to travel to, to, to Pakistan in, in, during summer vacation did I realize how big cricket was throughout the world. And, uh, and I started to really get into it. I started to play it. I started to follow it. Obviously, the advent of the internet really helped because, you know, getting cricket in the U.S., at that time was really difficult. Um, but, you know, once the internet kind of started to flow and you start to read all these articles, start to follow it on a daily basis. And, and obviously like I'm American, but obviously I'm American of Pakistani origin. And so, you know, I'm not going to support the American cricket team, whatever that is. Uh, I'm going to support Pakistan. And, and, and my dad had taught me all about the history of Pakistan cricket and things like that. So, you know, I, I had this natural affiliation with sport in general because of my love for the NBA and baseball and, and the NFL. And then cricket was just like a, you know, another, a part of that. Right. And so, um, slowly got into it and, uh, I wanted to make a career out of it. Um, and it's almost like an against the odds, right? It's almost impossible that a kid from America who never played the game of cricket at any kind of high level would then go on to kind of manage a cricket team, would actually go on to make decisions in a cricket team. And I think the reason that that happened was, you know, I, I felt a sense of injustice, you know, kind of just watching and observing cricket for a long period of time. You know, you know, watching the Pakistan team for a long period of time, I just felt like nobody cares about these guys. You know, they 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 see them as kind of tools, a means to an end. If it doesn't work, blame him, get him out, right? And then and, and players lie; they're human beings, right? And their lives are dependent on this. And, and these guys don't even make a lot of money, specifically at that time. And and I just felt like that needed to change. And there was a way to do this better, to do this more in a more structured way, in a more process-oriented way. And obviously, it's almost impossible that someone like me, to, me could get in the business, but I was lucky and I, and I found and navigated a way after maybe 10 years of really kind of chasing people. And, and the advent of T20 cricket really obviously helps because private enterprise will always garner merit. Yeah. And so that always opens up opportunities for, for people. Um, and so that was kind of my story. I mean, uh, that's how I kind of got into the game of cricket. I, I really loved the game. So for me, it wasn't just about, hey, you know, you know, you know, yes, there was this kind of sense of injustice that kind of drove it. My love for Pakistan cricket drove it. Um, but, you know, I just love the game of cricket. It's just a beautiful game. Just watching, you know, 11 players out on, the, out on a beautiful pitch, you know, batting and bowling. And, you know, it was just, it was just fun to watch. I mean, I remember, um, not to go too long, but the, the players that I really loved growing up, you know, Saeed Anwar was one of my favorites. You know, Saeed Anwar was batting. I, I was watching, right? Uh, Shreya Bakhtar was one of my favorites, you know, Shreya Bakhtar is bowling, you know, just, you know, something might happen. Yeah. And, and even, and even though I disagree with everything that Shreya Bakhtar does or says, you know, when he was batting, you, anything could happen, right? Like literally anything could happen. But when he was like on song and at his best, it was just amazing to watch, right? So that was, that was the kind of the game that I kind of fell in love with. And, and at the same time, there's so many other great cricketers out there, such in Aravind De Silva is one of my favorites to watch. 
And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got in the game. And I'm, I'm still in the game. I'm, I'm out of the game now, but, um, you know, I still love the game very much, even though it's changed a little bit. But uh, I'm not happy to kind of be on this podcast. I, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast if, if, if none of that, none of those things happened. Yeah, well, I was just going to say at the, the very start when you mentioned that, you know, you follow Pakistan and cricket, I was going to say what an emotional roller coaster. But then you mentioned Shahid Afridi, and that just proved my point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to have these kind of emotional roller coasters when you don't have any structured process or structured approach to, to running your organization, to building a cricket team. You know, when you just kind of make decisions based on reacting on different things, then obviously you're going to have that in, in Pakistan for as long as I've been alive. I've seen that in Pakistan cricket, other cricket teams as well, but, but specifically Pakistan cricket, where things kind of just happen, uh, you know, based on what someone feels like that day. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, actually, one of the, the really interesting topics, and I got this from a couple of the Jared Kimber podcasts, including your own one, um, I think there's a, there's a real big shift towards, you know, data-driven decision-making, obviously, generally in industry, but sport is slowly going down that path. So... It's funny, I think we've spoken a couple of times now for about an hour or so, and we haven't really discussed your transition from the world of finance, being a cricket fan, to then being a general manager of cricket. And, and maybe even I sort of jumped over the hoops that you had to sort of pass to get there. Um, can you tell, and, and a lot of the people that would listen to a podcast like this one are going to be fans, you know, potentially based in the subcontinent that, that love their data and analytics, love their cricket, and want to know how they can make a career out of this. Um, can you tell us, I guess, well, look, we, instead of going through the whole journey, what was that final step and what do you think really worked for you to finally get your crack in the industry? So I think, uh, you know, like a lot of these stories, you know, when you kind of break into the industry, it's just years and years of, of, of trying. Um, there's kind of no kind of secret sauce to it. I mean, I'm, I'm out of the industry and, I, and I'd love to kind of get back into it, but it's just really hard. It's just really hard to convince somebody that you're good enough, specifically if you don't have a name attached to you, um, that you're good enough to kind of, uh, you know, be the person making these decisions. Um, and so, you know, you know, I'm kind of, that's kind of a boring answer, not, not kind of like a, a rite of passage, if you will. But, you know, I think the thing that I did was I just really worked hard watched a lot of cricket, I observed it, I wrote, um, I kind of uh, made my own process. And so, you know, data was really important to me, but I think data is secondary to kind of having your own process. There is actually a process to running a cricket organization. There's a process to building a cricket team. There's a process to evaluating talent. Data can inform all of those things, but you have to have that process right first, right? So let me give you an example of what process looks like. So process looks like, I became the general manager of the team. What is the first thing that I do? And so the first thing that a lot of people do is they say everything that happened before me was terrible, which is why I probably got the job because things were not really, really good. I didn't do that. And I never do that. Um, my thing is you have to embrace your situation, right? So when you come into, the, come into a general manager position, the first thing you, you do you don't discard all your players. You actually embrace the players that you have. You try to understand what happened here. Uh, what are the good things? What are the bad things? And you, and you try to fit those players into what you're trying to do. Of course, there needs to be changes. Uh, but the easiest thing to do is discard everybody, kind of go with a revolution approach when you can do it, you know, you know, move towards kind of an evolutionary approach. And, and that's where data is really important because data provides insights into your decision-making, right? And, and some of those insights can be 
obvious and some of those can, you know, you need to dig a little bit more. And so the one, the, the one takeaway that I will give to people that are aspiring to be in this, in this field is number one, you still have to watch the game, right? You know, having kind of the, the analytics part of it down doesn't mean that you don't watch the game because I think there is a human aspect to making these decisions, right? You're dealing with players. They're human beings. They have families. They have agents. They have girlfriends. They have different things going on in their lives. And you have to manage them too, right? You have to manage their personalities. So there has to be kind of a human aspect to it. But because of the world that we're living in now with data and analytics, you have to, you have to know how to code. You, you have to be a ninja with Excel. You have to have all of these things. And, and that's where I would say to start. And, and I think a lot of people, I was kind of in the transition. These things never really, like I don't code. Like I, I don't code. Um, but, if, but if I'm working with a team, um, I can analyze and interpret and translate those, those data points to make good decisions. But I myself don't code. But the pathway now that I'm seeing, whether it's in baseball, basketball, soccer, anything, is if you know how to do that, you can kind of get in because that's where your entry-level job is going to be. You're going to be a data engineer. You're going to be a coder. You're going to you're going to have those kind of skills. So do that, and obviously carry your passion of cricket with it. Yeah, no, awesome. And you hear a lot of these buzzwords, right? Like Moneyball being the main one, um, but you hear about the sort of transition of teams starting to use data more, or you know, players, agents, whoever. You hear a lot about that, especially in American and European sport. Um, obviously, we're based in in Australia, and and that revolution is starting to, I guess. Um, starting to get some energy <laughs> but um, can, can you tell us I guess what the reality is like because most of us not being involved in a professional level in cricket um, we don't actually we hear we see the articles we we hear things like Nathan Lee and the English team and all that kind of stuff but what what is the reality like you know what are the, some of the teams that might be using the data in, in right. more of a, a serious practical way and and what do they actually use you know because there's a lot of talk about models and sort of black box solutions and all that kind of thing, but how do teams actually use it? So there's a really important word in general management. I'm sure it's, it's, re it's really important in kind of any kind of management. The word is alignment, right? And I can believe in data, but if, my, if the owner of my cricket franchise doesn't believe in it, it's not gonna work. If the coach that we hire doesn't believe in it, it's not gonna work. If the captain that we appoint doesn't believe in it, it's not gonna work. And so you need all of these people working in unison and to believe in it, right? So for example, I believe in data. Now my owner has to, has to invest in a, in a data provider, right? He has to invest in you know, what, one of the data providers that are out there um, so we can have the data to interpret, right? Because in, in a short T20 franchise season, you're not gonna be building models right then and there. You, you almost need the existing models right in place. Um, of course, you have your own internal data but building that out is, is, is a little bit more challenging in a short period of time, right? Because specifically because these franchises are very fluid. Um, and so alignment is really important. Um, the second part of that is, is which teams are using it. Well, I think a lot of teams are using it. I think some teams are using it really well. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't, you know, spoken to these people, but I know Slambaz United uses data and they've been very successful. If you look at the history of the PSL, they've been probably one of the more consistent franchises. Uh, you know, I met their owner many, many years ago when PSL started and he, he comes from a banking and finance uh, background. And so it was a natural transition for him to hire people that believed in it, for him to believe in it. Um, you know, KKR and TKR, um, you know, I met some other analysts. You know, these are really, really smart people. 
um, they're using this to inform their decision making or they're using this to advise the people making the decisions. Um, and I use it. I use it with Jamaica. I mean, um, you know, I was kind of pigeonholed as a data guy. But, you know, for me, you know, the, the key thing that data does uh, is sometimes the captain is not going to want to do it. Right. He's not going to want to do it. Sometimes the coach is not going to want to do it. But there's a very simple way of using data without imposing data. And you can do that if you're a general manager, because when you're building the roster, when you're going into a draft or you're going into free agency, you know, you have all that data. So your data is going to inform how you allocate, uh, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you have at your disposal to sign players. Right. Um, and so when you use the, if you use the data correctly, you can kind of create this kind of mitigation of risk you know you, you, you know you can be you can participate in risk management basically right and so even though your captain or your coach is not making decisions based on data because there's a limited amount of players on your team he can only do so much right there's only going to be three openers probably on your roster right so you can't really make a lot of they can't really make too many mistakes because they can't go outside that roster yeah. and so and so for a general matter yes as i said the alignment is really important to really kind of do it right to do it on a game-to-game -game basis to really evaluate your performances and different things but i think as a general manager if you were to come into that position you can easily use data to inform your decisions because um and, and see the results of that uh, i think when i when i look back at um the success that we had with the jamaica talawas you know our coach was was very much into data uh but of course i'm not going with data and stats to chris gill i'm just not i'm not doing that yeah. right because it's just it just doesn't make sense to do that um but because the, we, we structured a roster around, uh, around certain data points that made it easy for, for, for the team management to make decisions that weren't going to go outside that. We had already created kind of a parameter um, in the way we structured our roster and our roster construction. That's a, it's another big buzzword. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, let, let's talk about cricket now, okay? So the, the sport itself, getting away a little bit from the data, but not too much. Um, I think the last time we spoke, we spoke about a, a couple of players that you think should have had more of an opportunity. And, and if you do look at the data and if you watch enough cricket, it's kind of mind-boggling that they didn't get the opportunities that, you know, we probably thought that they should have. Um, feel free to, to go through a couple of the your favorites in terms of who should have gone mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, be, being Pakistani, you know, I think there, there's a lot of guys, actually. There's a, there, you know, Pakistani is a trevor, treasure trove of, of, of injustices in cricket, right? You know, because, of, again, there's, there's so much bias, right? I think, I think one big subject matter, and in fact, just going back to a previous question you asked, you know, what should, you know, up-and-coming, you know, executives, you know, participate in? What, what kind of knowledge should they have? Behavioral finance, very important, you know, because, you know, you – you know, we all have these inbuilt biases that, that determine our decision-making. Mm. Knowing what those are can help us uh, mitigate risk, which is really important, right? So, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to make the right decision, but it could prevent us from making the wrong decision, um, you know, in a, in a larger kind of, you know, data set, if you will. Um, in terms of those players, I think I think the, the name that always comes up in Pakistan cricket has been coming up for the last decade is probably Fawad Alam. Yeah. You know, Fawad had probably one of the, I think he has the best, if not you know, maybe the top five best averages in the history of Pakistani first-class cricket. He also performed in international cricket. So while he was out of the team, people always said, hey, his domestic numbers are good, but, you know, can he translate that to international cricket? Not realizing that actually when he played one-day cricket, I think he played 40 games, his average of 40, 
Uh, when he played test matches, he didn't play actually a lot of test matches at the time. He had an average close to 40, batted in adverse situations. Um, so this was a guy who, by all accounts, was a rock star. In that, that not only succeeded in domestic cricket, but he succeeded in international cricket, yet he was out of the team. Right. At the age of 36, he comes back to the Pakistan team, and he's scoring runs. He's scoring runs. Now, that's, that's not to say that he's the best batsman. Uh, that's not to say that, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, Fawad is Virat Kohli or anything like that. He's not. He's not at that level. Uh, but this guy is a really good, solid, consistent batsman that was far better than the players that were playing ahead of him. Mm. But what happened? What happened to him? Well, there was a bias. The bias was that Fawad was this crabby, he had a crabby stance. He was short. He didn't look like, like, like a Pakistani batsman. He didn't. He wasn't dashing. He wasn't Sayyidan, but he wasn't Shahid He wasn't Inzamam. He didn't have a beautiful technique. But within that technique, he was able to score runs, right? And so people are so focused on his technique. They weren't focused on, hey, he can actually play the short ball with that technique. And what does he do? He, he's, a, he's a good judger of length, so he can lead the ball, right? He actually does get into good positions. And so people are so caught up on the bias of what he looked like rather than what he was, right? And so what what failed? So so the failure is not for lots. The failures of the Pakistan Cricket Board is that the people that they hired as chief selectors are the people that were thinking about the game in Pakistan, kind of the intellectuals of Pakistan cricket. They actually never came up with a process for selection. They actually never came up with a process for evaluating talent. Their evaluation of talent, and I'll, I think I might have mentioned this on Jared's podcast, but the evaluation of talent in Pakistan goes something like this. Let's hold a batting camp, right? Let's invite thousands of people from this city to a batting camp. Well, a thousand kids can't bat in one day. So what do they do? They give each kid two or three balls to bat. How can you evaluate how good a kid is at batting with two or three deliveries? There's a myriad of different things that can happen in those deliveries that wouldn't tell you anything about them, right? Batting is about time. Even in T20 cricket, you really understand how good a batsman is when you play 40, 50, 60 balls, right? Um, and so that's kind of the mindset. The mindset is beauty. The mindset is, oh, does this kid have a beautiful cover drive? Can he hit it over the fence? Because if he can do either of those things, then he's probably going to be a good batsman. But there's a lot more substance into run scoring. Run scoring is the key thing, and that's that's a data point, right? It's not it's not the beauty of it's not the beauty of watching um, a bowler the way he bowls his action. It's really what he's actually doing. Yeah. Is he taking wickets? Is he scoring runs? How is he doing those things? And it's not always about the aesthetic. And cricket is, and many sports are like this. It's 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 the aesthetic because that's kind of how it's always been done, watching with your eyes. And your eyes are important. We shouldn't ignore what we see with our eyes. But but again, you know, coalescing that, reconciling that with data, reconciling that with logic, and most importantly, and the thing that 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 I think that I think is the most important thing, as I said, is process. You have to have the right process. I think that is what. A lot of teams don't do even even cricket Australia, even though they're far more advanced in Pakistan, maybe far more advanced in South Africa. You know, I question their process of mm. selecting players, of evaluating talent, and and uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that's why I got into the game. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm out of the game. No one wants to kind of uh, <laughs> no one wants to talk about process. Well, I was just about to refer to the I guess the next stage, and look, I don't know what your plans are, but say it's 2023, two years from now, an opportunity opens up. And, you know, you, you choose to take it. And now you're the general manager of a T20 franchise once again. Um, I wanted to, I guess, ask you split question. Firstly, what's the number one thing that you would want to ensure you would do as soon as you get in that seat? 
And number two, who's a, an undervalued or a, an underrated T20 player that you would want to sign for your franchise? If I was able to, if I was, if I was to get another opportunity as a as a general manager of cricket franchise, I wouldn't do what I did the last time. So I, I was briefly the general manager of the St. Lucia Stars, and the owner of the St. Lucia Stars was, you know, he's a different type of guy, right? And I conceded a lot of things, right? Because it's an owner, it's, it's his team, it's his money, right? And so when he was like, "I'm just going to get this guy," right? Even if I knew that that was a terrible decision, you know, I need to fight against that, and you, even if that means resigning. And the last time I didn't do that. You know, I think this time, if I ever get the opportunity again, I'm going to make sure that, hey, if, if you're making me your general manager, then you have to trust my decisions. That doesn't mean you have to trust them blindly. It does mean that, hey, I have to give reason, rationale, logic, numbers behind the decisions that I'm making. And then we come to a conclusion together, right? Because you can't just be in, you know, you, you know, you can't be making executive decisions about the, you know, without kind of the, the purview of the owner without the collaboration of the owner because again it's his money uh, but i think the last time i was in this position that's something that i did and that cost us a lot tons of bad mistakes um because i even if i spoke up maybe it wasn't as forceful as i should have been because you know, i knew that th these were these were things that were not going to end well and yeah. they didn't they didn't end well um in terms of in terms of uh you know what's a player uh I think there's a bunch of guys actually i'll throw a couple out there um yeah honestly there's so many good, good really good players coming out you know one player and, and this is kind of a cop-out because you know i i scouted this player for the talawas and and i really pushed for him to kind of get in the team and he's now kind of blossomed um way at, long after kind of i i left is glenn phillips from new zealand i think that guy's he's a rock star he's a superstar when he came to the talawas i think his salary was like ten thousand dollars which is nothing I think now he's like 70, 80, and he's probably, if he is going to go and play in the IPL, he's going to be a you know, top-rated guy. Yeah. Really good wicket keeper, super guy, really good character. You know, comes in, bats at 150, not scared of anything. You know, one of the things that, you know, when I scouted him for the Talawas, what they were telling me, people from New Zealand were telling me this, like, hey, he's young, he's not going to be able to bat on those wickets because, like, the wickets in, in, in the Caribbean are different. They, they don't bounce that much. They're not as well-made as, as the ones in New Zealand. They're like, hey, he's not going to be able to play spin there. And yeah, he struggled at times, but he was always scoring runs. He's probably one of the best overseas players, um, you know, in the Caribbean and in, in the Caribbean Premier League and has been for a while. You know, the other guy that I, I really love, and I know he's kind of gone through his bad patch, is Heather Ali. I think Heather Ali is a, he's a big, he's a superstar. I think he's, you know, people love talking about Babur, Babur Azam, and Babur is a really good player. Heather Ali is better than Babur, in my opinion, because he's more fearless. You know, where, where, where Babur is kind of, you know, even in the last game when he scored one, 158, you know, he, he had used a 1.15 off 38 deliveries. And that's fine. You can do that. Um, but I think what I like about Heather in, in a country kind of devoid of batting talent is the guy just seriously, you know, aggressive, really confident. And, uh, and he is a, he's a stroke maker that Pakistanis haven't seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. But but there are so many other guys. You know, I think uh, uh, in, 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 in Afghanistan is a guy I really like. Uh, Shento from Bangladesh is a guy. He, he reminds me a lot of Kumar Sangakkara. Um, now that's a very that's a different level. Kumar Sangakkara that's a that's a different level. But you know I think uh, Shento is, is really good. And, and Bangladesh honestly has a really good system. You know we talk about you know we talk about the countries that have resources like India and Australia and England. 
Bangladesh maybe doesn't have the same resources as, as those countries, but they've done a really good job of developing players over time. They always have good young players coming through. Awesome. Okay. And look, I, I guess to, to finish off, you know, the T20 World Cup is coming up in a couple of months, uh, predominantly based in the UAE and, and a couple of the other surrounding countries, I believe. Um, I, I guess the, the last thing I wanted to run through with you is who, well, firstly, which, um, are there any teams that you think in terms of the style of play are really standing out to you that they're, they're approaching T20 cricket differently to, I guess, one day cricket or, or, or sort of have enough players playing T20 cricket consistently that you can see that really unique brand of T20 cricket stand out to you? I might get you to answer that one first, actually. So, so I think with these competitions, it's important to remember their tournaments, right? So, yeah. you know, a, a team that's not as good can win one of these, right? So a team that maybe we don't fancy or we don't think that they're that good, they can come and win this tournament. On the other hand, but we're not going to talk about those teams. We're going to talk about the teams that are actually like doing really well, that are consistent, that, that have really good players. And I think you can't look beyond England and India. I mean, I know it's the boring answer. Everyone wants to hear hey, something out of the box. But, you know, India has awesome players. You know, if you look at top to bottom, they have hitters and not, not hitters, like hitters with good technique in almost every position. Right, they have guys that can come and change the game. You know, Pan, Kohli, Sharma, even guys that are not on the team. Shurasire, all these Manish Pandey, all these guys, they're they're, they're stars. You know, you have Bumrah. I mean, um, Pandya that can come at the end. Hardik, Krunal is not even a, a regular. He's really good, and they have really good bowling attack. You know, when you know, for me, T20 is about batting, but it's really about bowling. If you can control the opposition, what they can score, and India, in my opinion, has the most diverse attack. Right, they, they have fast bowlers. They have guys that can bowl at the death. They have two spinners who can bowl in different directions. Ashwin doesn't even play T20 cricket for India, even though he probably could in a lot of other teams. Yeah. Um, they have good fielding. India has a really good fielding team now. Um, so India definitely in England. I mean, I think we just saw what England did. To, again, different format, one-day cricket. But the depth of talent that England have is, is really special. And I think the one thing that, that I think people should look out for, specifically with England, one thing I noticed against Pakistan was their spin bowling, you know. People think about England spin bowling, they think about Adil Rashid, they think about maybe Moin Ali, but Matt Parkinson, really, really interesting, really interesting bowler. Um, you know, he, he, he was really good um, against, against Pakistan. And then obviously you have the, you know, you know, New Zealand is, is always going to be dangerous. They're always going to be organized. They have a lot of really good players. You know, this isn't your your parents' New Zealand team. You know, there's talent on this team. There, there, there's natural talent on this team, right? Yeah. Someone like Glenn Phillips, not playing in this team, really good player sitting on the bench. Um, and, and then obviously West Indies, right? People, people want to, people, everyone wants to root for West Indies. Um, and, and we saw what West Indies is doing against Australia right now mm. um, in the Caribbean. You know, those one to, one to nine, they have devastating hitters, right? Fabian Allen coming in number eight, number nine, devastating. Sonia Narayan's not even playing on this team. So, you know, they have really good players. Um, I think, I think with, with West Indies, it's always just kind of like the other things um, kind of unrelated to cricket that, that kind of, you know, make you question. They, they can win the tournament, but I think in terms of readiness, in terms of teams that have been kind of building up to this kind of, uh, to the World Cup, you know, India and England, they've been the most consistent. They've been the best teams in kind of certainly the shorter formats. And, and, and to me, as hard as it is for me to say, I mean, India is definitely, I mean, if you look at it, 1 to 11, I mean, just, you know, there are no gaps there. Mm. I think, and from memory, the, the second half of the IPL was just before that, right? So I think there's... Right there's a real big advantage for teams with a lot of players in that tournament. You would argue that from a mental health point of view, being in the bubble, 
yeah, that, that would be draining for them, especially for the Indian players to go from a five-test match series, maybe the majority of that squad, then go into the, the IPL and then the World T20. It would be mentally draining, but from purely a cricket point of view, to have, you know, for especially, you know, India, England, to have these guys to be in those conditions playing T20 cricket and then transition into the World T20, I think that'll be a really big advantage. And that's something where, from memory, there aren't too many Australian players, aside from their absolute sort of, you know, well-known stars that are going to be in that tournament. So do you see that playing a role? Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest with you, me as, you know, being in this kind of position before, like the traveling matters. So these little things like, you know, the bubble, you know, it's it's, it's hard on guys, right? But you have to kind of factor in the, the reality that everyone's going through the same thing. Sure. Um and so it's not, it's not as if it's one team more than the other. And these guys are professionals, right? Like once they get on the cricket field, maybe they, it could impact the quality of the cricket. Um, but they're there. They're there for a short period of time. It's a World Cup. Um, and, 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 and honestly, like the, the UAE is a great place to play. I mean, I watched a couple of games, PSL games there. It's just, it's just a great place to play. And hopefully, you know, the fans can, can be there as well. I, I know that they're going to be playing matches in Oman, which should be pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, never never played in Oman. Sharjah is a great stadium, very intimate. Uh, never been there, but watched a lot of cricket on TV in Sharjah. So you know, it should be it should be fun. I, I do want to give a shout out to Pakistan cricket because being a Pakistan, of course, I want Pakistan to do well. Um, you know, Pakistan has a lot of really good players. You know, they they have a lot of really good players. They can be so good, um, but you know, I think. Uh, they gotta pick the they gotta pick the best eleven. They gotta structure that eleven the right way. You know, I, you know, the one thing that I will say is that it's great to see Mohammed Rizwan getting the recognition that he deserves. Um, You know, people just view him as this kind of hardworking cricketer. They moved him up to the opening position. Um, He's done really well there. So I think, uh, you know, with him and Babur, maybe Sharjil Fakhar at the top of the order, they have some guys that can score runs and they put runs on the board. And Amir, I think Amir, if he comes back, their attack would be more well-rounded. I wouldn't say Amr is a savior because I don't think he's at the level that he was when he, before he got banned. Um, but there, there's a really good team in there. There's a really good team in Pakistan. There's a lot of good young players coming up. Uh, I know this is really sidetracking, but I just want to mention Shanawaz Dhani, who's, who's a really good young fast bowler who's come from Pakistan now. Coming from a, a really small small city, Larkana, where I don't think any cricketers come from before. Uh, and he's just a super ebullient guy. It would be great to see him in the Pakistan team because he's going to the West Indies now. But really a good character. I mean, really fun guy. He was part of the Multan Sultans team that won the, the PSL recently. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it should be fun. I mean, the World Cup's always great. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the one, you know, having it in the UAE should, should, be, should be interesting. Yeah, I think we're, the fact that we're going to, uh, there's a lot of international 220 cricket on at the moment in preparation for that. And the fact that we're going for, the second half of the IPL, which will obviously be a lot more fun. Um, and then we've got World T20. And then there's um, then there's the Big Bash, obviously, based here in Australia. So I think right, right. it'll be really good to sort of see. Because I think the the only issue that I've previously had with watching a lot of T20 cricket is that, you know, usually it's only half of the full-strength team. It's in some odd conditions, at odd times. But now that we've got some continuity and these guys are going to be playing a lot of it, I think it's going to be at a really high standard and we'll actually have time to get to know the players for the storylines to develop. I mean, you know, most fans that don't watch every single game out there, it'll give them an opportunity to get to know the guys and, and really sort of get immersed in, in the next few months of cricket. 
Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I think you're you're on point. I think uh, it's hard to kind of get that consistency. COVID hasn't helped. You know, being in a bubble for a long time. Um, you know, consistency in your squads. So you know, what what is Australia's best line? We don't know. Um, I mean, I think we know, but like you know, I don't know if they know. Um, but uh, but yeah, Jake Weatherall, he's another one for me. Love him. So you know, I think uh, it should be it should be a great tournament. I'm looking forward to it. And there's another World Cup coming right after that. Another T20 World Cup, I think, within a year or even I think it's uh, next year. A year and a half span. Yeah. Well, actually, that's one thing that I, I hadn't planned to talk about. But now that we're on the World Cup topic, obviously being based in Australia, um, we were actually talking about the Australian T20 team, partially for the approach that they play with in T20 cricket and partially for the squad itself. But I don't know if you've watched much of this West Indies Australia series. It's been perfect time for us, so we've been watching every game. Yeah, yeah. But Mitchell Marsh has, you know, played really well in these four games. I think he's got a man of the match once, maybe twice. Um, well, actually, sorry, they've only won once, so the once. <laughs> but um, he's really mm-hmm. stood out at number three. Do you, do you see a role there for for Steve Smith, or do you think one of the domestic BBL guys like a Mitch Marsh, who's really excelled and is informed, do you think one of them could take his spot? Yeah, so I'm not a big form guy, right? Because what is form? Form is recency bias, right? Like like Mitchell Marsh, he, he dominates in West Indies. Uh, that, that means nothing when, when it comes to UAE. What we do know is that Steve Smith is is one of the great players that we've ever seen. And at number three, I always want a guy that's going to anchor my team. And now anchor doesn't mean to like stop the flow of runs. It just means that this guy is extremely reliable. He's, you know, on average over a long period of time, he's going to score a lot of runs. And so I think it's better to have Steve Smith at three and you can surround him with someone like a Mitch Marsh, right? So like if, if Steve Smith is batting at three, you can play Mitch Marsh at four and, and he has that protection knowing that Steve Smith is there uh, to carry the team forward. Ashton Turner, I could see batting at five. I think he's, he's a really good player. I think sometimes he's been miscast at like a number six, number seven. Uh, it'd be really good to see him at a number five. Like even in this series, he's, I remember he had that horrible IPL that one time and, Recently in this series, I think he's gotten out to spin a couple of times as well. Whereas someone like a Glenn Maxwell, I can see holding his spot, especially if he has a good end to the IPL. Yeah, I mean, look, I think like Steve Smith should be there. Glenn Maxwell should be there. Turner should be there. You know, I wouldn't look too much into some of the struggles that maybe Turner has had when he's played for Australia recently or when he's played in the IPL. I think the thing with Turner was, hey, Turner's really good at the end of an innings, right? Like number five, number six, really finishing the game. But if you look on average, um, how many deliveries does the number five and number six player face over the course of a tournament? It's very low. So I think there's going to be a fl- always going to be a fluctuation in their performance. It's really hard to maintain a steady performance right. from those numbers, right? So even though he's really good at that, he's probably one of the best guys at that, there's still going to be some fluctuation uh, in his performance. So, and, and sometimes teams don't use these guys. I don't remember exactly how Turner is being used in the IPL, but sometimes these guys are not used the right way. They're not asked to do the right things. Uh, but if you look at, through the course of his career um, in the BBL, he's done really well. Um, and and, uh, and again, he's been in and out of the team, so you know, I, I'm not going to put too much stock into some of those down performances. I, I still like him as a player. And with Steve Smith, I mean, I think you got to play guys like Steve Smith. You need Joe Root, these guys. There's always a place for them because they're just too good. They're run machines. Yeah. No, excellent. Okay. Well, Marvin, it was really nice talking to you, I guess, on and off the podcast today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. We'll, um, we'll, we'll tag you when we do post the podcast. Um, and obviously, if anyone wants to reach out to you to talk all things cricket and cricket analytics, um, obviously, they'd, they'd love that opportunity. Yeah, I'd love to. I love talking about the game. I mean, you know, I think uh, the foundation for anything 
you know, to be good at anything in life is just to love it, right? Like you love what you do, which is why you're gonna be really good at it. For me, I love freaking, I love talking about it. Even if I'm not working, I'm still following it. I'm still watching a ton of it. My, you know, at the expense of, you know, my wife's happiness sometimes. But, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to chat with people about the game and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, one day I'll be back and we can talk about, uh, you know, what I'm doing good and bad. <laughs> awesome, cool. Thanks a lot, Mahan. All right, thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to check out more of our content, go to sporttechdaily.com or follow us on social media across Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram.